The Goal of Biblical Counseling, on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. And this week on the podcast, I am once again joined by Dr. Sam Stevens, who is our Director of Training Center Certification. If you recall, last week we were discussing the definition of biblical counseling, or at least one that that Sam and I have proposed. I'm going to read through that again because this is a continuation. We're going to look at the, the second part of that definition and sort of dissect that just to describe in a little bit more detail Uh, what we intend to say by this definition. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then that'll give you an opportunity to to sort back through, maybe remember last week's podcast, some of the things that we discussed, and then we're going to to hone in on that second section. So here's the definition that we, we are proposing. Biblical counseling is the personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others under the oversight of God's church, independent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Biblical counseling seeks to reorient disordered desires, affections, and behaviors toward a God-designed anthropology in an effort to restore true worship of God and right fellowship with others. This is accomplished by speaking the truth in love and applying Scripture to the need of the moment by comforting the suffering and calling sinners to repentance, thus working to make them mature as they abide in Jesus Christ. So Sam, this week what we want to do is focus on that second section. If you remember last week, we tried to begin the process of talking about the nature of biblical counseling, what it is, what it isn't. Uh, This week we want to focus a little bit more on uh, the goal. What is it that we're aiming at? What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, What are we setting out to do in the counseling room? And, And I think this is important as well. And it's really critical when we talk about the goal of biblical counseling that we have biblical aims because it's very easy if we define a problem a certain way that we can utilize worldly language to aim at a goal that actually is logical and makes sense um, even if we define the problem in a wrong way. And so it's really important that we make sure that the goal of what we're trying to accomplish is for example, in, in counseling secularly, a lot of the aim in their counseling is to just make a person feel better. Well, that's wonderful, but that's not the full-orbed aim that we see in the Scripture. Uh, a person, the Bible says, it's better for them to uh, gain access to heaven even if they're missing an eye or an arm or anything like that. So we, we have more of an aim than just simply, simply feelings. It's not that we don't want people to feel better, but we have a distinct goal, and it's important that we set that out at the beginning. So let's dissect this, Sam. I'm going to defer to you in asking the first question uh, as we hone in on this second part. Biblical counseling seeks to reorient disordered desires, affections, and behaviors. So what do we mean when we're talking about uh, biblical counseling seeks to reorient these aspects of the heart of a person? I think that's extremely important. Actually, to speak to what you just said first, I think this is maybe helpful for our listeners When I look at different counseling theories, um, whether that be secular theories or attempts at integration, I always ask the question, what is the aim or the point of this approach? And that is actually a great place to start. Um, It helps identify the thrust of the counseling, uh, why certain terminologies or frameworks are used, and very quickly you can 
discover, especially if as you're comparing it to the scriptures, if it's a biblical approach or if it's weighted down by different approaches to knowledge or views of man that would distract from what the Bible teaches is our aim and function. The, the choice of the word reorient is actually very purposeful. It is packed full of uh, many truths, one being the most obvious, that we are fallen people. Secular approaches, by and large, view people—this kind of gets into biblical anthropology—but they view people as either neutral or good. And this is the opposite of how the Bible depicts us from Genesis 3 onward, of course. In fact, biblical theology, the whole message of the Scriptures, you can't miss this point that we are fallen people. I'm reading through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel right now. Even David, a man after God's own heart, is plagued with sin. And so we know from the very beginning when our counselees come in, we have the task at reorienting something that is broken. Uh, their, Their desires, their affections, their mind, their behaviors, all of these things make up who they are, are pitched towards Uh, themselves, towards sin, towards disobedience of God. Uh, This is our default. And so as biblical counselors in bringing the truths of the Scripture, the tools and resources that God has given us in His Word through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are working from, from moment one on highlighting our Lord and Savior, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Um, and then we talk about also, and we'll get into this, the, the goal. This is, they're, they're intricately tied together. The goal here, um, and, and Randy Patton says this, so I'll have to give Randy credit. Uh, I love this. Uh, we need to counsel with the end in mind to keep our counsel on the, the right path here. And what is the end? The end here for biblical counselors is transformation and confirmation. And by confirmation, I'm talking about being conformed into the image of Jesus, uh, who, of course, perfectly reflected God. And so that's what we're working towards. We are person-centered in, in one aspect, and that is the person we're centering on is Jesus. We're not trying to conform our counselee into a better image of themselves, their, their best life now. We're not even trying to orient them around uh, us as the counselor. Uh, we have to be very Christocentric here in, in our focus. So that's where reorientation comes into play. Yeah, I think that's so critical is the place that we begin in biblical theology uh, is to, to begin with the idea of the way God created us. Uh, and then because of the fall, it's impacted every aspect of our being. If you think about the doctrine of depravity, um, we don't believe man is as bad as he possibly could be, but what we do believe very clearly is that uh, every aspect of man, this gets into the noetic effects of sin, how the sin, how sin affects the mind, uh, but it affects every aspect of our being. And this is sort of what we're getting at here when we talk about disordered desires, affections, and behaviors. And here's the thing. This is not something that's just simply true about counselees, as if they're in some sort of category of abnormal people who, uh, you know, they're, they're much lesser than the rest of us who counsel. That's so not true. The idea is that this is something that has affected us all, and the same things we as the counselors are aiming at in our own life to reorient our disordered desires, affections, and behaviors toward the Lord is the same need because of their humanity that the counselee walks in the room with as well. And so every aspect of their being has been affected. Uh, One of the mistakes I want to point out in this particular section that counseling systems often make, even we in biblical counseling sometimes uh, have a tendency to make this mistake as well, is we we will uh, unnecessarily focus on one aspect of a person, trying to reorient their disordered desires or reorient their disordered affections, their loves, the things that they want. 
or their behaviors. And here's the thing, all of those things need to be reoriented. Um, when we think about dealing with the whole person, we're not just to simply focus on one aspect. Yes, there is a flow from the inside out, from desires to affections, then toward behaviors. There is a flow in the Scripture of how that works. Uh, however, we're, we're to make sure that we're clear that we're dealing with disordered desires. Here's one example as to, to why. Because um, we can change the outward behavior of a person, but if we don't, don't change the motive, God is actually concerned with what goes on in the heart and why we do a certain thing. There were tons of people, Pharisees and Sadducees in the Scripture, who did right things outwardly. God was still very displeased with them. But by the same token, we, we can flip that idea. We can have people who uh, overtly say they desire to do the things of God, but if they're not walking in holiness, that's also a problem. And so we see this picture for us to reorient the, the whole of the person, every aspect of their being, because every aspect has been affected by by sin in some way, shape, or form, and and our responses are often in that direction postured towards sin. So it's important that we think about our goal is to reorient back to what God originally designed. And that's the second part that we're getting into here toward a God-designed anthropology. Now, we don't want uh, for people to get confused or to press pause or to disengage when we use this word anthropology. All we are talking about here, um, we're trying to make crystal clear uh, one area where we see biblical counseling, but um, the modern church being attacked, and that is this definition of who man is. And what we're trying to say is we're not just trying to do self-improvement as most of the world does, because the secular psychological world definitely defines man in a very different way. And that's all anthropology is, is, is trying to understand who is man. And so when we begin in biblical counseling, our doctrines that we believe to be true about humanity uh, have to be consistent in the way that we think about counseling and in the way that we practice counseling. So when we talk about uh, a God-designed anthropology, uh, this is a statement that tries to make crystal clear who we are, what we're about, what we're aiming at, as opposed to what the, the secular counseling models uh, uphold, and that's a, a faulty anthropology. They begin in the wrong place, and therefore their goals becomes, become faulty and, and really not useful to us, uh, quite detrimental actually, uh, in, in the model of biblical counseling. So can you speak just for a second about this idea of a God-designed anthropology? Sure. And it goes back to what we've said earlier. Um, the human story, the human timeline, the human problem cannot be separated from the fall of man. We cannot ignore that. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, a lot of the critiques that we have often from integrationists and um, secularists when they bother to, to mess with us at all is that we, we focus too much on sin and everything's about sin. Well, when you read the Bible, uh, sin is central player. I mean, the, our, our fallen nature, our need of saving. A big part of biblical anthropology is recognizing that fact that we are creatures in need of saving. And um, one, um, one critique that we are is often lobbied against biblical counselors is that we're reductionistic in this approach. Well, I would, I would dare say that, well, first I would disagree, <laughs> but I would say that uh, what's more reductionistic, us bringing to the forefront of our counselees the fact that they are plagued by the curse of sin, and then it touches every aspect of our life. Think about James chapter 3, for example, at verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, 
there is disorder in every evil thing. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I think that covers a pretty wide gamut of life issues. Uh, Jealousy and selfish ambition mark many aspects of my life. So disorder in every evil thing exists. And this is in the context of comparing worldly wisdom that is faulty and non-saving with God's wisdom, which is pure, right, and good, and leads to a true solution. Um, And so in this, we recognize that as creatures in need of saving, uh, we have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. He is the creator who is the healer. He is the creator who is the great physician, and we are not. So that distinction is laid out very clearly for us. And I think that is a big part of understanding who we are as people, uh, just just right there, our identity. The problem has been laid out already, sin, uh, and all of its impacts, whether we suffer in this life due to other people's sin, our own sin, the struggles that are there, but then also the solution. And this is going to be very distinct in biblical counseling versus other approaches. We talk about repentance because it's needed. We talk about forgiveness, not just us forgiving other people, but our need of forgiveness because we have uh, come up against uh, the knowledge of God so often in our, in our fleshly pursuits. And then ultimately reconciliation with both God and man. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think if we were to continue that same thought, when we think about God-designed anthropology— uh, it's important that that we look at the secular world, and they they really don't have a definition of what normal humanity ought to look like. They just look culturally and and identify things that that are unwanted. We don't like this feeling, so we make it a disorder. We don't like this attitude, we make it a disorder. We don't like the way people act in this way, so we categorize it with criteria. Um, and and here's the thing: when we think about biblical anthropology, we have to think about what God designed. We begin in the image of God. We have an idea of what God intended for humanity. We see the impact and effect of sin. And I don't want to reduce the idea. I think sometimes integrationists, as you mentioned, uh, when they critique us here and they call us reductionistic, I think the idea is they're reducing a view of sin as if it only impacts a small aspect, a quote-unquote spiritual corridor of a person. Uh, That's a faulty idea. When we talk about depravity, it's affected and impacted every aspect of the human being, and the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that he restores the fullness of who we are. That's a part of the process that's happening. So when we talk about a God-designed anthropology, we in the in the scriptures have, by Jesus in the New Testament specifically, we have a definition of what normal looks like, what God intended for anthropology. And the beauty of the gospel is not just salvation that, hey, we get to uh, gain heaven and be with God forever, but it's the fact that God is now conforming us to what? To that beautiful image that was intended from the beginning, and that demonstrates God's power, that he's, he's conforming us and transforming us to the fullness of God's image which is what he designed from the beginning. This is why this is a proper biblical goal, and anything that steps outside of that becomes something that I would categorize as being unbiblical and therefore unfruitful, often detrimental. So the last section that we're looking at here, so hopefully that brings a little bit a bit of clarity, is uh, we we are building toward a crescendo in this section, and this section is to to help us to understand that all of this is moving toward what God expresses as the primary ideal for us as humanity, and that is in an effort to restore true worship of God and right fellowship with others. Sam, can you talk about that idea that that we're aiming toward this true worship in right relationship uh, vertically with God and horizontally with others? 
Sure. I think uh, there's one verse, actually, in James, going back to James, uh, that really sums this up nicely. And there's several passages, of course, uh, that speak to this. This is a large theme, in again, in the Scriptures. But one that I really appreciate is this last uh, verse in chapter 1 uh, in James. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I think I find that fascinating because there there could have been so many things written there about what true worship looks like. And what do we see? We see two things pointed out here. One is a love of others. But this love of others, and specifically in the context of orphans and widows, uh, the least of these, um, but where is that born out of? That is born out of a love of God, keeping oneself unstained by the world. First John talks about this at length. Uh, the writings of Paul, it's all over the Bible. Um, uh, even the laws that God gives to the Israelites in the Old Testament, all of these things are ways for us to keep ourselves unstained uh, by the world. We are still in a fallen world. We still have a sinful flesh. And yet the command by Christ to live holy is possible because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is uh, a, a big part of what true worship is. And again, we mentioned this is opposed to false worship. I see this so often, and it's manifested in many different ways. People trying to save themselves. Um, again, their, their confession wouldn't match up with that, but functionally, the way they're living their lives, they're trying to be their own savior. And it manifests in anxiety and worry. It manifests in great depression. It manifests in, in a whole host of different ways. Anger, because we are carrying around a burden, this burden of kingship or queenship that we're not designed to carry. And so orienting around true worship, again, puts us in our right place. Not that, you know, it, some people may be offended by the idea that we are creatures. Don't be offended by that, because when you look at the story of the scriptures and the fact that God gave us his son as, as the special gift and that Christ redeems us in this very unique and special way, if nothing else, it highlights his grace and mercy towards us. And that brings us, again, to, to, to right worship. And so the, the worship of God and the right fellowship with others are actually in tandem with one another. That right fellowship is born out of um, a right view of God, um, a, a, a theological orientation to our world and our problems and who we are, and, and again, loving others is truly born out of that. Yeah, and this has been a consistent thing throughout the history of the, the modern biblical counseling movement. And I would argue in the history of the church in the way that they think about soul care is that this is the point of primacy in the individual's life is how are they oriented toward God in relation to worship. And we see that fleshed out sociologically in the way that we relate to others. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus describes the the Decalogue in this way sums it up that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. Right. He, he boils that idea down, and that is the sum total. Our Lord has said this, and, and we must not be deceived by the systems of the world. And, and here's the thing. None of us are outside of this proclivity toward being deceived by the the religions, if you will, of the world. And yes, I would categorize uh, secular counseling theories, much the way Paul Vitz did in 1979, as as posing as a religion. It's an alternative. Uh, it is a not a complementary uh, exploration. It is something that is contradictory. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter two, verse. Uh, verse 21, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Verse 22, referring to the things that all, uh, that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here we see Paul's focus on what God makes primary, we must also make primary, and not be deceived and confused about uh, human knowledge that tries to achieve, achieve something that's put in the category of religion, even if we think it's good religion, we must stick with what God describes uh, as helping people overcome these indulgence of the flesh that all of us are prone to. And this is really the goal, to orient people's hearts and minds and behaviors back toward the way God intended. This is God's will for us, for sanctification, to conform us to the image of God so that we worship Him rightly and we live in peace with others as well. That is the goal of biblical counseling. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, based on last week, we had several wonderful questions from the definition, and I'm sure today we're going to have some good interaction as well. So we want to encourage you to continue uh, to ask those questions. In subsequent weeks, we want to be able to answer some of those questions and tie in our thinking from this definition in how we think about other counseling systems and how we respond to, to pushback that we may receive here in maybe some ways that we're exclusionary, but we want to invite you to ask those questions, and you can do that at info at biblicalcounseling.com.